0: Your Bible or your phone, tablet, some device, you'll be looking at the text. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 this morning. 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, we are finishing the letter to the Corinthians from Paul uh, this morning after many months in this letter, wrapping it up. And as you're turning to chapter 16, uh, um, our, our heart's desire here would be that that you would find Jesus to be enough, because he's more than enough. And I think in this season, um, as we are coming off um, a holiday week where maybe it was the ideal Thanksgiving for you with the people present, um, the food that was there, everything was just the way you wanted, um, far more likely it wasn't, (laughs) um, that there was something lacking something that wasn't exactly the way you want. Um, as you, so, we start to roll into um, a, a busy season of Christmas and thinking about, again, family and gifts and these things like that, um, and, and just realizing that, that things just fall short of satisfying us. Except Christ— Right? That those are good gifts, and we want to celebrate and enjoy the holidays and all that come with it. But that ultimately, this morning, as we look at Scripture, that we would find that Jesus is the one who satisfies. He's the one who meets our heart's desire. He's the one that we don't ever leave going, it was, it was good. could have been better. Right? Like, that He, he meets us in a way that, that nothing else can. I think I, I've been thinking of this because um, yesterday, as is, is I spent a good portion of the day um, decorating outside at, at my own home with my kids um, as they're excited for the holidays. And then last night, I um, spent it with a family and a dear friend um, who is in hospice and, and just doesn't have a lot of time left. And they're saying goodbye to family, right? Like that, that, that just kind of, that'll be me one day, right? Like that I'm just reminded of the thing that satisfies, the thing that gives hope is Jesus. And so that as we walk into this season that what we would long for, right, like what our affections would be stirred for is more of Him. Is more of Him because He is good to us and He is faithful to us and He is far better than you think He is this morning. Right? No no matter how well you think of Jesus, no matter how much you think of Jesus, no matter how much you could wax eloquently the rest of the day about Jesus, He's better than that, and He's more than that. Um, so this morning, we are going to be finishing Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And and this is, again, one of those reminders of, of kind of the way we preach. This isn't a passage that you've probably ever heard preached. Um, it's not… Um, filled with a lot of, of list of things to do or things to avoid. It doesn't have a lot of, of rich new things, and yet what we're going to see is Paul is, is pulling his letter together. Um, he is ending it. It's a good reminder for us that it is a letter, right, that Paul wrote this to a specific people in a specific place with specific issues, Right, and and as we finish chapter sixteen, we'll see that that Paul is going. Hey, it's it's written by my hand. It was written to the church in Corinth, and we've we, we've walked through a lot of issues. Um, the fact is, is if if you've been with us, you'll see that it's been a tense letter. Paul has been intense with them, and that tension is not all finished and wrapped up with a bow on it at the end. Um, if you've read ahead in Second Corinthians, the tension remains. It it escalates even. Um, but as, as we finish, would we be reminded that, that Paul was writing this, um, as he was thinking about it, he was writing to people, to faces, to names. Um, so let's, let's read this. So now concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits." But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Acacia, and they've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to, be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings, so greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hands. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So as you, as you read through 16, you sense like it's a letter. He is finishing this up with some final thoughts, um, some personal points, some travel plans, with some bullet points, with some greetings, that he is just kind of wrapping, wrapping up this letter. And you can almost sense this idea of like, okay, all right, as, as we're finishing up, oh yeah, this, let me tell you, give you a quick update on these people, that he's, that he's finishing this. We saw his travel plans in verses 5 through 12, just kind of bulleted of, hey, here's what I hope to do if the Lord allows. We see him um, give thanks to a family from Corinth in, in 19 and, or in 15 through 18. He gives greetings from other churches in 19 and 20. Um, he talks about a, an offering collection in verses 1 through 4. So, I mean, it's just, it's quick, just kind of bullet points, thoughts, and ideas. And so I just want to walk through this chapter as we finish our time in 1 Corinthians. And, and really where, we, where I want us to start is in verses 1 through 4, um, and just explain a little bit as to what's going on regarding this, this collection. Um, we know the church in Corinth knew what he was talking about because he does not go into, hey, here's why we're collecting money. That there's been some back and forth with, with people traveling between Paul and Ephesus and the church in Corinth. There have been letters back and forth. We know that this isn't the only letter. And that what is going on is that in Jerusalem, um, there was just some chronic issues, and the, the church in Jerusalem was was Poor. And so, he often is asking in his letters for help from the other churches to send back to the church in Jerusalem. And so, we see this in Galatians 2. You'll remember that there was a a period in in the early church history where they were trying to decide, are we going to take the gospel, right, to non-Jews, right, to the Gentiles? And that eventually that Paul is is tasked with that, that there's agreement. And so in Galatians 2, verses 9 and 10, so he says this, And when James and Cephas, who is Peter and John, who seemed to be the pillars, he means the pillars of the, the early church, perceived the grace that was given to me, right, by Christ, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and that they would go to the circumcised, meaning the Jews. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And so what we see here is this is a way that Paul is trying to honor his agreement with with the early church fathers of, I want you to remember the poor. I want you to take care of the poor. And it's also an opportunity for the Jews and non-Jews who are now believers to be unified. We see this also in Romans 15, verse 27. Paul writes this, um, For Macedonia and, and Acacia, which, is, which includes the Corinthian church, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Listen to verse 27. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles, the non-Jews, have come to share in the spiritual blessings through Christ, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. So he's saying, like, it's the least the church can do. It's the least that, that these folks out in these other communities can do is, right, like, we have hope now. We have salvation now in Christ. And he came through the Jews. And so if we need to bless the place that it came from, we want to do that even with material blessings. And so what the, the collection is doing is it's, it's a way of, for, for Paul to honor his commitment to the church fathers. It's a symbol of unity, of reconciliation. It's a, it's a way to bless them. And so he says, look, here's just some specific ways. You want to know how we're supposed to collect it? Here's how I want you to do it. On the first day of every week, right, we're reminded that the church, the early church worshiped no longer on the Sabbath, but on Sunday. They're, they're worshiping and remembering the fact that the Lord was raised. And so that they have moved now. So it says on the first day of every week, each of you put something aside and store it up. As he may prosper, what it's saying is it's not a, a, a flat rate. It's not a tax. It's not a temple tax where it's like everyone has to give a certain percentage or a certain amount. He's saying, look, as you do, as you prosper financially, right, it should, it should raise. And if you're not doing as well, it could be lower. But set it aside week in and week out, right, so that when I come, we don't pass the hat. He's like, because if, if I pass the hat when I come, I'm going to have to like, you're going to feel like I'm manipulating you or goading you into this, and there will be less given. than if we just consistently, until I come, you set some money aside, just week in and week out. And when I come, there'll be this stockpile of money, and we're going to take it back to the church in Jerusalem to, to serve them, to, to honor them, to support them. And he says, look, I'm not sure if I'll, if I'll go with your guys from Corinth, but at the very least, I'm going to write letters so that when they go to the church fathers, they'll know that they've been sent by my hands. Um, if it seems in verse 4 advisable that I should go, then, then they'll go. I'll go with them. We later learn in 2 Corinthians that he does go, um, that, that he did make that, that call. But ultimately, what we're going to see in, in chapter 16, the focus is not this isn't a tithing passage. This was a specific offering for a specific need at a specific time. Ultimately, what we see Paul doing in this last chapter is kind of summing up the book. He's summing up the letter. that The, the, the desire that he has is that church and Corinth would reflect the glory of God, that they would reveal who he is and what he's like and what his character's like to a pagan culture that they would not be afraid of what they've been called to. And so, I want us this morning to take heart in this, that if the church is called to reflect the glory of God, even in an unbelieving and pagan culture, that Paul is not saying, hey, you know, write them off. They're too far gone. He says, well, you're going to show who, who God is to the world. We're not going to build something to show it. We're going to be that ourselves. And so we're going to look at four ways that he calls them throughout the letter and specifically in chapter 16 to reflect this glory. And church, let's take heart as well. As, as our culture is not what some of you have remembered it being, what you hope that it would be, that we would take heart that we can still reflect the glory of God in the midst of it. And the first is this is that he wants them to reflect by remembering that it's not just the little sea church in Corinth. He wants there to be solidarity among believers everywhere. And so sometimes where we get things confused is we think of the little sea church and what I mean by little sea is it means like redeemer, right? That we are a local body in one place in one time in history, right? We're a little sea church. The big C church, the universal church, is all believers, right? And so we know this morning that we have brothers and sisters that we will spend eternity with who are worshiping in other places in Pampa, and in the Panhandle, and in Texas, and in America, and in the Northern Hemisphere, and in all of the world. And that there have been believers who have gone before us, and there will be believers who will come after us, that that is the church. And so local individual bodies come and go. But the capital C, the big C church, continues to march forward. So Jesus didn't say, Redeemer, the gates of hell will not prevail against y'all. He said, church, the saints of God, those who are called according to his purpose, who know him and love him and serve him and follow him, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. The capital C church is history marches forward. And so we are a part of that church. We are also part of a local body here and you'll remember that throughout the letter, Paul reminds the church in Corinth often, I'm not giving you something new. I, I teach this in all the churches. I remind all the churches. This is, you've, you've done well to remember that this is what all the churches do, that they're not on an island, that he's not just um, frustrated with them, that he is teaching a common thing. He's just not picking on them that there's a message that all believers are called to, and he wants them to understand that we should be in solidarity with those who follow and trust and love Jesus. He gives them greetings. Look down in verses 19 and 20. He says, look, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Right? Um, the church that meets in their house sends you greetings. All the brothers send you greetings. They're, they're supposed to be collecting an offering for the church in Jerusalem, right, that most of them don't know and don't don't live with and don't interact with, but that he wants them to be in solidarity together, to be encouraged by the fact that there are other believers. So in the last couple weeks, a good friend of mine who pastors a church down in central Texas um, called me because their local economy has just been hit, and the the primary employer in their community moved away. And so, 25% of their town will most likely be gone in the next, like, 12 to 15 months. And he, right, pastoring a great church, loves his people well, serves his community well, and he's like, hey, um, he remembered that we're in an oil-filled town, and we have, right, Bust and booms. And he's like, So you've seen this, you've you've walked through. He remembered a few years ago when when we had a lot of big employers leave town, and he just and he just needed someone to kind of talk through, to process through with. Right? Now most of you don't know one person in that church, and most of their church don't know anyone here, including me. But these churches can encourage one another that they can walk with another, they can be locked arm in arm, even if we are in different places. Um, even just this week, I had a, an individual in another community in the in the panhandle call and just say, hey, we, we've been watching Redeemer from afar, and we, we, we'd we be really interested in seeing if there's a way to do that in our town. Could we talk? Right? Like, I have, I've never met this person before. I didn't know that there was any conversation going on, and, and yet— that they're seeing a body of believers and they're being encouraged by that. That's what Paul is talking about here, that we cannot live on an island thinking the only thing the Lord is doing is here. That we would be encouraged that there are folks this morning trusting Jesus for the first time. That there are folks that look and talk and sound and live very differently than us who are singing praises to our King. And that he is worthy of that worship. That he wants, that Jesus is the one who brought those who were near, the Jews, and those who were far off, the Gentiles, together. And it's through his sacrifice that we have one hope and one salvation, and it's Jesus. And so we can reflect the glory of God, right? By being in solidarity with other believers. And in being in solidarity even in our own body, being unified. The second way that we can reflect the character in the glory of God is this, is that we can have affection for one another, right? And so a verse that maybe seemed a little strange to you, verse 20, where it says, all the brothers send you greetings, and so greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, I, don't, I didn't notice any holy kisses this morning, um, right? So here's the thing, right? The holy kiss... Was, was simply a, a, a culturally appropriate sign of affection, of warmth, right? Um, I, living in the Middle East, there's still a little more hands-on than I was comfortable with coming from West Texas, right? I had, I had never walked down the streets of any city in the U.S. and had someone come and hold my hands, right? And then all of a sudden I'm walking through the streets of Yemen and, and people just want to hold my hands. And I'm like, I don't know you. Well, why are you holding you know or i would be sitting there and they would put their hand on my thigh I'm like usually only my wife does that right like <laughs> um and in in the midst of an argument to calm the other person down two men will be arguing and they'll reach out and start stroking the other one's like side of his face to, right that escalates the argument right that's <laughs> <So I, laughs> right I, I i can just imagine right going to Mike's store this week. You start arguing. You reach out and, like, stroke his face. That doesn't, like, that doesn't calm things down, right? It doesn't. Don't try that. And so, but those are culturally appropriate ways to express affection in cultures. And so, this morning, um, for the most, now, look, you see this occasionally. There are some cultures that have have, have brought this in. You'll sometimes see this with, with older folks with, or, or someone that maybe you haven't seen in a long time. That you might kiss them on the cheek, right? You might see them kiss somebody on the forehead. It's not that where this is completely um, unbelievable happening, but it's not a common thing. What Paul is saying, he's like, I want you to greet one another with warmth and affection, right? And so, in our culture, maybe this looks like, you know, giving someone knuckles, right? Maybe this looks like, you know, the, the bro hug, right, where you grab them and you kind of pull them in with just one arm, right? It, 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 but it's, it's, how are you saying, man, I'm really glad to see you? Like, I, I know you and I care about you. Because think about this, the church in Corinth, not a lot of affection has been going on. They have been having battles within the Lord's supper between the haves and the have-nots, where they have separated themselves and they've said, "You can stay outside, and we're going to eat the better meal." That we've seen superiority um, arise. That people with certain spiritual gifts have said, "I'm I'm more spiritual than you. I'm, I'm better than you." We've seen um, we've seen issues with slaves and with with freedmen and within owners going. I don't like the fact that the Lord has equalized all of this. And so the church in Corinth has not shown a lot of affection for one another. There's actually disagreements and and hard things going on. And so Paul is saying, show affection. Why? Because it means you like each other. It means you care for one another. It means that, that, that you want to be a part of this church family together. What we can see is there is still concern with it. There is still tension here. Because look what he says um, in regards to Timothy in verse 10. So when Timothy comes, and he's already told us in 1 Corinthians 4, 17, that he is sending Timothy to them. Look what he says, though. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord, as I am. Let no one despise him. Paul doesn't ask that if he doesn't think that's a possibility. That this other man of God is coming, and he's like, I'm not sure how you're going to treat him. But we're supposed to show affection for one another. You're supposed to care for one another. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me. For I'm expecting him with the brothers. Like, I'm going to hear how this goes. Even then in verse 12, So now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not his will to come. He will when he has opportunity. Remember, Apollos is, is a more eloquent speaker than Paul. And that there have been a group in the Corinthian church who have said, We want Apollos, and Paul, we don't care what you have to say. Apollos is now staying away, most likely, because he doesn't want to continue to create more dissension and more divide. He wants things to get sorted out, that if he's going to come, that people aren't finally like, finally, we got rid of Paul and his letters, and now we got the good speaker. Paul's saying, look, we have to be warm and affectionate towards one another, because we are the family of God. Jesus himself says, church, to his disciples, that they will know you are mine based on how you love one another. John 13, 35. Like, how much more should we show affection? In all of this, like, tension, Paul still calls them a church. There's a lack of affection. There's a lack of unity. And there are all sorts of big issues going on. And Paul doesn't say, you've lost your church card. So how much more can the church really reflect the character and the glory of God if there is actual genuine concern and care and warmth and affection for one another? So I, I want to give us a couple of examples of maybe what this would look like. Um, I know growing up, most of the churches and most of the baptismal services I sat in, um, the, the response was a polite golf clap. Man, that's not family, Right? Versus, I know that person, and I've seen the Lord take them from being far from the Lord to near to the Lord. The Lord has rescued them, and I want to celebrate because there's a miracle there. Death has been vanquished, and life has come, and because I've walked with them in the midst of the hardness and the difficulty and the concern, man, I'm here to celebrate. There's Golf claps aren't going to cut it. That begins to show some warmth and some affection that the church would have, that we would know the folks being baptized. We would have walked with them, that it wasn't just the pastor brings someone in and says, hey, here's a gentleman that you've never met, that you don't know. I've been doing all the work, haven't included any of you in it. Celebrate with me. But it is a family that we are pursuing people together for the glory of Jesus' name and for their hope and salvation that we would see affection in when our gospel communities multiply. And here's the way that works, that we are excited to see it and we're sad to see it (laughs) because we actually care about one another. There's actually warmth and depth of relationships that we know will be affected if some folks leave our gospel community to start a new one. And yet we're so hopeful for the fact that Jesus is worthy of worship and that more worshipers will come and more folks will have that depth of relationship that we would gladly send you out and celebrate that While we hurt and while we ache If there isn't any of that Then what were we doing in the first place Did we even care for one another In the first place Another would be that you rejoice With one another Because you know what's going on And that you weep with one another Because you know what's going on Like I haven't been having to send out A lot of messages about Jerry This week People are asking me Saying how can I pray for him What's going on? We know things are drawing to an end. And it's not out of morbid curiosity, it's not out of gossip, it's out of concern for Jerry and Jenny, the folks who know them and love them. It's that people notice when you're not here, that they miss you. And not out of that, like, weird. Keep a little tally, so when I see you at the plaza later this week. So where were you? Right? None of that. Like, I, like, none of that. Not out of guilt, not out of obligation, but out of like actual, like I like you, and I like when you're around, and I'd love for you to be a part. And I just want to make sure everything's okay. Or hey, you know, is there a reason? Right? Like it, it's not out of some sort of like religious like rigor or rules, but out of genuine relationship. Right? Because Jesus' affection, He pursued us when we did not want Him, when we did not deserve Him, when we were enemies of His. And then not only did He pursue us, He loved us. He brought us into the family. He restores us. He interacts with us. He knows us. And so we want to do the same. We want to reflect the character of God by pursuing those who are currently enemies of Jesus, who want nothing to do with him. We want to see their lives restored and transformed by the gospel, that he would have another son or another daughter adopted in, because he is worthy of that worship, and that we would walk with them in the midst of that not just loving people because we're supposed to, but actually enjoying and liking people. And maybe here's, here's one that's a little, a little harder to imagine. What I hope it means is that even in this body, there begins to be some trust, because the fact is, is you don't know everyone in the room really well, or very deeply. You know some, but not all. But there would begin to be this trust that would go, man, I don't even know you, but I trust what's going on and what the Lord is doing, and so Man, if I get the opportunity, I want to. Like, I want to pursue the depth of relationship. I want to have lunch together. I would gladly come to your GC if something went on with mine. Right? There's just this, like, level of trust because you love someone that I love. Right? You're involved with someone that I'm involved with. There's this just sense of trust and affection that moves among us. And, church, we can do this in a pagan culture because Jesus has loved us this way. We have received this kind of love, and so we can then pursue others in this way because we have received it. The third thing is this. It's not just that we reflect the character of God in our solidarity and in our affection for one another, but also in that we can encourage one another. Look at verses 15 through 19. He's talking to the church in Corinth about some of their own. He says, so I urge you, brothers, sisters, You know that the household of Stephanus, right? So this is one of theirs who has come to visit him. There's three men who've come. And he says, they were the first converts in your whole area. They were the first fruits. Remember as we talked about the resurrection the last few weeks? that Jesus was the first fruits, that because he has been raised, the promise of the harvest is that we will be raised as well, that Stephanus and his family were the first believers in that area, and it was God's like down payment saying there will be many more. And now Paul is writing to the many more, to the church in Corinth who believe, and yet Stephanus and his family were the first. And he's like, look, they have come to me, and they have encouraged me. Look at verse... Um, in verse 17, they have made up for your absence. They have refreshed my spirit as well as yours, so give recognition to such people. They have come and they have ministered to Paul with their presence. They've just they've, they've told him stuff of what's going on and, and just being there, they have loved him and they have served him. And he is telling them, look, it, we got problems in Corinth. We have divisions and such. This is a family to model yourself after. This is a family to imitate. That what they have given themselves to, look at verse 15. They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker in labor. He's like, that's what it looks like. This is what it looks like to serve one another, to love one another, what this family has done. They've come and just given themselves and served me and refreshed me. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Look at verse 9. In verse 8, he says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover. Verse 9, For a wide door for effective work has opened up to me. He's like, I'm staying. I want to come see you, and I want to spend time with you because I love you, and you got issues, right? But I want to come... But there's effective, there's like a wide open door here for ministry. And you're thinking, oh, right, yeah, the, the revival and all these things that we want to celebrate. And look at how he ends verse 9, and there are also many adversaries. All right, this is the story of Jesus' life, that ministry happens and people oppose him. We've seen it's the story of Paul's life, that ministry and glory and great things happen, and he also gets beaten and shipwrecked and in jail and left for dead and hungry. Right, it's both in. That when God opens up a work of ministry, it's not that all things fall to the wayside and there's just this shining light of a road and no adversaries will come. There will be adversaries. And so Paul is encouraged by those who know him and love him, coming and refreshing him. Earlier, Paul mentioned that there were wild beasts that he was facing in Ephesus. He wasn't talking about actual wild beasts. He was talking about the people. Like, they're wild beasts looking to destroy me. And yet, in the same breath, he would say there's a wide door open for effective work. Church, we can encourage one another. When there's effective work being done, there's also, also often adversaries. That we need to be reminded to stay in the fight, to not grow weary in doing good, to be encouraged. And so we, as we were overseas, people sent emails, and they encouraged us. And people sent gifts, and they encouraged us. But the thing that encouraged us most was when people showed up. When they took the time and the effort to get to Yemen, and not that we were going to put them to work, just so they could minister to us, to be with us, and to be present, to encourage us to stay in it. Right? It's what we can do right, with your gospel community leaders. It's what you can do for nursery workers every week. <laughs> Right And say, thank you, right That you serve rambunctious three-year-olds, and you're beginning to point them to Jesus, it would be easy to go. Too many adversaries in this room. <laughs> right? <laughs> My son included, right? Like too many adversaries in the room. But no, we, we stay in it because it's worth it, and there's effective work of ministry for the glory of God. Paul saying, "Look, I want you to serve." One another, and the final way we reflect is this in verses 13 and 14. Paul quickly just hits some imperatives. Look at what he says So be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, which is, be courageous, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. Right? The whole letter has been whatever we do, we do it in love and we do it to serve one another. That the church had been accused in Corinth of saying, you're self-serving, you do it for your own benefit. And Paul's saying, no, 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 be like Stephanas. He he serves the body, he encourages others that the giftings and the time and the energy we have is to make much of the body so that it rightly reflects and glorifies God. Not that we're seeing how much we can get from this. And so he says, be watchful. Church, would we hear Paul's words here that it means that we can be distracted, We can be deceived. That we need to be aware and looking, not letting our guard down. That there are implications for life if we believe that Jesus has defeated sin and Satan and death at the cross. There are implications for life if we believe that He is coming back again. So He says, be mindful of this, be watchful. Don't be lulled to sleep. He says also to stand firm. He this is a military term. Don't retreat. Hold your ground. He wants them to be firm in their faith. He's just laid out the resurrection in chapter 15. Like this is what we need to be firm in, that Jesus has defeated sin and Satan and death and that he lives today, that he has satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. That he is coming again. You trust the scriptures and you stand firm in them. Look at verse 22. He says this, so if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. It's like, if you don't love Jesus and you're in the church, like, kids are in this morning, so curse you, right? He's saying, there's a place for you to go, right? It, it is that language. He's like, and then he says this, come, Lord Jesus. So here's what he's saying. When Jesus comes and he's coming, he's going to split the sky and step into history again. He is coming for us. That for many, that will be a day of vindication and celebration and worship because we will be proven right and our king will be with us and will be meant to be with him forever. And for others, judgment comes on that day because they have fallen asleep and they have opposed him and they have not loved him. And when he steps into history he will not be there as conquering king for them. He'll be there as conquering king over them. And so when, his, when he says, come Lord Jesus, for some we long and we hope for that, and for others they should fear that if they do not love and trust Jesus. And so stand firm. Vindication is coming. Be watchful. Our king is returning for us. There are implications, right? So if you are thinking about as being a teenager and your parents are gone for the weekend and you're not sure when they're coming back, right? There's some freedom there. But if you know when they're coming back, you're going to stand firm and you're going to be watchful, right? And there are implications because you don't want to be caught in certain situations. If that's the way we feel with our parents, how much more for the king who's rescued us? who has died for us, who has restored us, who has freed us. And he says, so we flee sexual immorality. And we, we live a certain way with the implications for life because our king is coming back for us. He is coming back. So he says, be courageous. Don't be cowards, even though you live in a pagan culture. You can be holy even in this context. And you have an enemy. But Jesus has won vindication is coming. And then he ends it with this. Let all that you do be done in love. It's like, so you can stand firm, and you can be courageous, and you can be watchful, and if you don't love each other, and if you don't love others, it's a waste. That we love because the Lord has loved us first. Listen, church. Jesus has loved us, and he has lived the life we were meant to. He has died the death that we deserved and he has defeated sin and Satan and death. He has satisfied the wrath of God and he has beaten it and he lives today and he is returning for us so we can live. So what Paul is ending here is this, you can live as though the victory is ours. That restoration is occurring, that it has occurred, that we will be rewarded if we live a life that is watchful and mindful, that is courageous, that is courageous, believing that he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. So he wants to make sure they don't leave this and go, oh, that was a nice, difficult letter from Paul. He says, look, no, 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 live in light of this. So church, that's, that's our call, is that we live in light of the fact that Jesus is returning. and That we reflect his glory for as long as we have in this life and wherever he has us. Because he's worthy of it. And through that, we see the power of the gospel, not through our eloquence, but the fact that folks will come to believe simply through simple reminders of who Jesus is, simple proclamations of the gospel, and living as though we believe it's true, as the victory he's had, and that he's coming for us. That's that's Paul's call to the church in Corinth, and it's our call as well this morning. Let's pray. Father, you are faithful to us. You are merciful and you are gracious. And Father, the fact that you are alive and that you are returning means you're calling us to live a certain way. God, would we not attempt to live that way so that you would love us and save us? Lord, would we live that way as evidence that you've already done it? Father, would we long to be a part of a family that would make much of you and see others come to know you. So would you speak to your your people, to your church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.